That's almost as bad as OJ. Okay, just found out that Kendall Jenner's middle name is Nicole after Nicole. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I knew that. I did not know that. And I watched the Kardashians. Okay, I'm not proud to admit, but I do. Is it so Kim, I was- is it Kim who's his goddaughter? <laughs> Leave the dog alone because the dog didn't do a damn thing. And now you're trying to feed him your body. Thou shalt kill all of your hands. And a dog fish a tampon out of the garbage. And write the bubble pages and pretend like you will. A dog. Wow. Hello everyone and welcome to Straight Up Evil. My name is Jocelyn. I'm the brunette. We've got Katie. She's the redhead. Hello. And we have Carly. She's the blonde. Hiya. We are back tonight with part two of OJ Simpson. If you haven't listened to part one, now is the time to go back and check that out before you get to this episode. We are getting into the trial, the aftermath, the history of this case, the context that we take it in today. Um, So it's going to be fun. When we last left the juice, he had just surrendered (laughs) under cover of darkness in the low after a low speed chase in the Bronco that ended in his driveway. He was charged with murder in the death of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown, and her friend, Ron Goldman. OJ was arraigned on July 22nd of 1994 and entered a plea of not guilty. Both the prosecution and the defense began to prepare for the trial at this time. But before we get there, it's important to understand the time and the context of the time and what was going on in LA while this was all happening. So Carly is going to get into LA in the 1990s. Okay. So like what in general, yeah, in general, the nineties in the United States were just an absolute bit of a shit show for sure. Like the recession, there's no jobs anywhere. There's a bunch of fires. AIDS is everywhere. It's just <laughs> shitty. Right. So LA went through like a particularly turbulent time gang warfare and the police brutality scene yeah great so it all started january 1990 there was a skirmish between the lapd and the nation of islam members okay so a random like a regular traffic stop ends up in the death of a 27 year old air force veteran named oliver beasley okay so white cop black victim police brutality right off the bat and if you you know remember Trayvon Martin George Floyd like this is like one of the you can't say first because there's a plethora the history is but very similar situation so during that particular case um sheriff's officials maintained that the shooting started after several men from a nearby apartment which all happened to be Nation of Islam members attacked them attacked the sheriff and the police that were there okay and in doing so they took a handgun away from a trainee a police trainee that trainee drew a backup weapon and fired five shots 
one of which hit Oliver once in the head and also the driver of the car that Oliver was in, David Hartley, who was 18 in the shoulder. But Oliver's family says a different story. They said that Oliver was lying on the grass and was shot in the head execution style. Wow. Jeez. A year later, March 3rd, 1991, Rodney King. Rodney and two friends had went for a drive after watching basketball on TV. They were drinking, having a grand old time. Two LAPD officers um, noticed him speeding on the highway and they tried to pull them over. But this results in a high-speed chase going about 117 miles per hour. And Rodney refuses to pull over because he didn't want to violate his parole with being caught drunk driving. They leave the highway and they're driving through residential streets and neighborhoods and several police cars at this point are following them, including a helicopter overhead. Eight miles later, cops cars corner Rodney and two of his friends get out of the car and are subsequently beaten by the police. Rodney stays in the car. Eventually they get him to come out and a gun is drawn on him as he gets out of the car because he reached behind him. He just put his hands behind him and the police thought he was like reaching for a gun in his back pocket or something like that. They didn't know if he was, they just assumed that that was what's happening and he immediately gets tased. After he's on the ground from being tased, he is beaten multiple times, upwards of 33 times, okay? Yeah, badly, badly beaten. It's badly beaten. It is awful. Eight officers end up swarming over him and he gets handcuffed while waiting for the ambulance to come. And all of this is on videotape. Yeah, somebody thought to record it in that time. Back in 1991. In that time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God they did. However, didn't really do anything because the LAPD officers were found not guilty of assaulting Rodney King. Despite it being on tape. So the people of LA are enraged. First Oliver, now Rodney. And this leads to the famous LA riots of the 90s, okay? There are several days of violence. There's looting, there's arson. By May 3rd, thousands of National Guardsmen and federal troops had been deployed to LA to curb the uprising, okay? Mm. During these riots, a news helicopter actually filmed footage of more shit going on. So a white truck driver named Reginald Denny is being pulled from his rig and he's beaten almost to death. And there is no sign of police assistance. No, they would not go in there. They They would not go in there. Yeah, it was fucking tense times. And there's civilians like literally getting, just like you're saying, Carly, like ripped out of their cars, getting very badly injured. And the police, there's just no one there to help them. Yeah. Just a couple minutes later, that same helicopter films a Latino driver, Fidel Lopez. Same thing. He gets pulled out of his car and beaten on the street. So by the third day of the riots, Rodney King himself makes a public appearance and he says something that everyone now quotes and it's like a famous quote. People, I just wanna say, can't we all get along? Can't we all get along? But 60 people were killed during these riots and there was $1 billion done in damage. Wow. And does it sound- LA was on fire. It was yeah. on fire, but this is like, not the first time this happened. Figuratively no. speaking and literally speaking. Yeah. Like this like, just happened previously in 1965 during the Watts riots. The same thing. A guy named Marquette Fry pulled over by a traffic 
for a traffic stop, drunk driving. He's beaten up by the police. LA goes crazy and riots. 34 people die, $40 million damage. Like what is happening? So like all of this is going on right before the OJ Simpson trial. Yeah. Okay. Black man, low speed chase. Mm -hmm. But I think that Carly talking about the nineties is the perfect way really to roll into this too. The first, the leading prosecutor was a woman named Marsha Clark. All day I've been saying, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> um, and then when I, re- when I did my research on her too, like, of course, you become completely obsessed with someone's career. And then you just literally start, you spend too many hours just researching just what she did. So her career spans 20 years of like ridiculousness. And she started out like really small. We don't, we're not going to get into it because we don't have too much time, but. Um, like in the early eighties, she was like in private practice and working as like a public defender. And she like basically did a 180 with her career and decided to become a prosecutor, like just kind of very, like it was very sporadic for her. And she just felt like she had this calling and she became a prosecutor. Her highest profile headlining case was when she prosecuted Robert John Bardo, um, who was convicted of stalking and murdering uh, a famous actress known as Rebecca Schaefer. Oh, Rebecca Schaefer. I um, love that case. That is so fucking scary. So he she was like obsessed be- with her. Yeah, he was totally obsessed and stalking her. I'm and pretty she- sure he rang her doorbell and she came and he killed her. Oh my yeah. God. Like it, it was really, yeah. Oh my God. Poor and Rebecca she, Schaefer. that was her breakout case. Like that's like what made her famous. So that was really cool. I thought, and I just wanted to mention that, but basically, so she was the leading investigator along with a guy who they chose, who was a black man. Okay. His name was Christopher Darden. He was not really the best attorney. He wasn't, he was new. Okay. He was new to the game. He was a rookie. They all called him a rookie. They chose him because he was black, not because he was good. And they thought that it would make them, the prosecuting prosecution team look better, that it wasn't just a bunch of white people ganging up on OJ, right? When really it's just, he maybe wasn't the best choice for the case, in my personal opinion. He's great, they still cool dude. maintain that they- cool dude. Um, Bill Hodgman, the supervising attorney, he still maintains that that was not why they had Chris Darden in there. They said he yes. was a capable, what like Absolutely. they, the, they completely 100% deny that. Defend but, that they want. Oh yeah, for sure. That they, he was ready and he is convinced also, he was convinced that he was ready too. And that yeah. he, like, he really, really was. And his mistakes were, you know, they were, he, it was just new. That's yeah. all. And I think he was scared too, personally. Uh, I would be too. But um, so they had a tough time. Their biggest defense was uh, they really used uh, that OJ was abusive to Nicole. And they used the all of the physical and domestic violence that occurred prior to the death of Nicole. And that was really their main focus. Like a lot of the women in the jury really were offended by her and the way that oh, she yeah. acted. Oh yeah, I have a whole thing, Vinny, on that, why they all hate Marsha Clark. It they is like so told her sad. to change and do all these things. And so it was like, she really struggled a lot. I think that she 
Yeah, and she came off as cold and calculated and and all of those things. She paid the price um, for being yeah. a strong, independent woman. She paid the for fucking sure. price. They both really fought really hard and they were really like harassed by media. Mm-hmm. Their families were harassed. Like it was, they went through a lot of shit to go up against OJ, to say the least. And not to mention the team that they had to fight against, which... Um, we're going to let Carly get into. I mean, it's like, how could you even compete? Really? How did they even stand a chance is what I want to say. And she wrote a book talking too about that, about how it was like, they, it was like, she didn't have a chance from the beginning. She feels mm-hmm. really, yeah. because he had a freaking a team, man. He had he a really straight- did. Okay. So Carly, let's-, let's talk about the defense. Oh, God. They literally everywhere just call them the dream team. Okay. They just are. They are, though. Yeah. I know, but it makes you so mad because he just got his money everywhere and he got every damn person. So he hires a dream team defense, right? Which included lead attorney Robert Shapiro. Eyebrows. Eyebrows. Caterpillar. (laughs) Caterpillar. Johnny Cochran, who later took over as lead counsel, F. Lee Bailey, Barry Sheck, Robert Kardashian, and Alan Dershowitz. I mean, that is unbelievable. Heavy hitters. That is unbelievable. It really is. I love Barry Sheck, one of my absolute fave attorneys maybe ever of all time he is he's one of the co-founders of the innocence project Mm -hmm. he's a really amazing attorney but watching this trial footage made me hate him so much and just be like oh man i used to i used to really like you but not anymore oj ruined it he really did he always does so let's get into a little bit who they all are so shapiro he was the lead defense counsel he loved the spotlight. He was a master manipulator. Huh. He was really good at manipulating the media to garner sympathy for his famous clients. Okay. Which I'm sure it works. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, in 1994, he was praised as the defense counsel of the year. And even the judge in OJ's case, like applauded for him. Okay. Okay. Like, oh, cool. Calm oh, okay. down. Calm down. He had to fight though to keep the leadership role in OJ's defense team because the other attorneys wanted to lead. Um, F. Lee Bailey reportedly leaked stories to the press about Shapiro's ego. Like there was a lot of infighting. There was a lot. Of, I mean, when you get that many, like so much politics, so yeah. many politics. Like oh my gosh! Obviously, it's like too many chefs in the kitchen. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, Tom, yes. Like, yes. Too many. It is too many personalities. Chefs in the so he would eventually get booted from lead status when Johnny Cochran visited OJ in jail and gained OJ's favor. So once Shapiro was demoted, he would bitch to anyone who would listen. And he tried to distance himself from the team's chosen strategies. Yeah. So he was obviously butthurt about it. So Johnny Cochran, he was a big shot. I mean, they all were. Um, he represented some of the biggest names in Hollywood, including Michael Jackson and James Brown. Um, by 1994, he was considered one of the best trial lawyers in the United States. Um, and OJ specifically asked Shapiro to get Cochran onto the team to begin with. Of course he did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, once he took over the control of the defense, he wooed the courtroom and the media. And they said that he used like a preacher style approach and controversially used the race card a lot to gain sympathy for OJ. A lot. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And apparently we get to blame him for the famous phrase pertaining to the glove. If it doesn't fit, you must quit. <laughs> you must quit. Thanks a lot. So then we get to Robert Kardashian. I feel comfortable assuming everyone knows who this motherfucker is. Bobby. Bobby. Bobby K. Bobby K. Kim K's father, lawyer since the 1960s, who was besties with OJ during the 70s and the 80s. Him and Kris Jenner, who was then Kris Kardashian, would hang out with Nicole and OJ. And they went to all the Easter parties and the 4th of July parties and the pool parties and all the things. Kardashian would rush to OJ's aid after the murders, like immediately. And he actually would become a member of the defense team, even though he was technically not really practicing law at the moment. He just came out of retirement just for OJ. He would read that terrible letter that OJ wrote during the the fucking letter wins absurd letter oh and it's like i can't for a minute you're like okay is he just not like good at reading aloud like is he is it just coming out not great and like very monotonous or whatever it's like no it's just the worst letter of all time um but he would stand by oj during the trial however they would have a falling out after the acquittal Mm. and and unfortunately he died you know you know too many years after that. Then we get to F. Lee Bailey. He joined the defense team just before the preliminary hearing. He held numerous press conferences to discuss the progress of the case. He did the famous cross-examination of Detective Mark Furman that was considered by many to be the key to the acquittal. Yes. He like it's spectacular. him, Marine it's so to Marine. And like, yeah, it's, I mean, I get it, but it just still makes me mad. He got Furman to claim that he never used the N-word to describe a Black person, knowing that they had evidence to refute said claim, and which they immediately used. Yeah. Correct. And it got Furman to plead the fifth, and it completely ruined his credibility, and it Mm -hmm. only helped Bailey. And he kept a silver flask at the defense table. Bobby Kardashian (laughs) claimed that it only contained coffee. He is a, Ethley Bailey is a good old boy. He, like, he's one of those old timey, have a flask in your hip holster attorneys. Then we get to Sheck, named the most persuasive attorney at the trial, but apparently may have actually made many factually false claims regarding the physical evidence. Mm -hmm. Because he was using the videotape and basically inferring from the videotape what what he was seeing and Mm -hmm. asking the witnesses to confirm that when the witnesses really couldn't confirm that. Well, it worked in his favor, didn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Worked real well. He was arguing that there was like this big conspiracy within the LAPD due to the, you know, how they took the evidence, the physical evidence and like what they did with it. And really, like, if you analyze that, it wouldn't have made any sense. Like, it was not practical. So he would present the science of DNA testing to the jurors while attacking the police methods of collecting evidence and basically demolish the prosecution's forensic evidence case. Like, he was good. Yeah, even though Marsha's like, we had 300 million pieces of evidence. They had so much evidence. Didn't matter. It was ridiculous. Didn't matter at all. But yes, because they made the prosecution looked as though their witness, Furman, was a racist because they had him saying the n-word she obviously was thrown for a loop and they weren't ready for that and that just completely screwed stuff up i mean really, it was a good bad. strategy it obviously worked <laughs> yeah it, just oh, sucks. Yeah. it was on oh it worked like a charm. <laughs> yeah. it fit like a glove yeah 
So then lastly, we have Dershowitz, who was an advisor to OJ's defense team, and he would later write a book about his experience doing so. Um, he was a very successful attorney. He won 13 of 15 murder and attempted murder trials that he handled. He represented Mike Tyson, Patty Hearst, and the televangelist Jim Baker. And he was also part of the legal defense teams for Harvey Weinstein. Great. Cool. Awesome. Great. So that's who we have helping OJ be a free man. All right. So we're rolling into the trial. What is the community doing at this point? What does the community feel about this trial? Obviously, OJ is a massive star, right? He's a celebrity and he's claiming that he had nothing to do with it. We already know, right? There's a significantly strained relationship between black and white Americans in the wake of Rodney King in LA at this time. At this point, it was not, and it still is not hard to believe that police departments and district attorney's offices are capable of putting an innocent black man on trial for, for the murder of a white woman. Like that's not difficult. It's not difficult to follow that logic, right? right? So if you add in OJ's fame and recognition, right? And his wealthy and powerful friends and his attorneys and the support of the black community in LA all You're working in his favor. Fucked. That's not a good way to roll into this. No. The whole, he's got a, a surge behind him. Yeah. They see me rolling. Okay, we don't have the rights to that music. <laughs> so, so jury selection is a nightmare. Complete and total nightmare. They oh. cycled through 219 potential jurors. Okay. Before they landed on the final 12 and 15 alternates, the final 12 consisted of 10 women and two men, right? So broken down eight black women, one black Latino man, one Latino woman, one native American man, and one white woman. Now, by the time they got to the end of jury selection, the defense was like, perfect. This is perfect. This went exactly in the direction that we wanted. We wanted the most diverse jury possible to hear this case. Is it common though, to have that many women versus the amount of men? Like that is a very, no, of us specifically black women. No, yeah. they start polling pre-trial the defense and the prosecution poll 5,000 LA residents. This is what they found. This is super interesting to me. Nicole was viewed as a white woman homewrecker by an overwhelming majority of black women. They said that this was because OJ was married to Marguerite when he started seeing Nicole. And this was perceived as a white woman of privilege, taking an eligible black man away from his community. Okay. How about real quick? And I know we're all three white women. Okay. Doing this podcast. Like I understand, but OJ <laughs> I was know. a literal cheater and a literal murderer. So like maybe cool it on Nicole. It's really tough. A little bit. It's really tough to take um, because she's not here to defend herself. Exactly. You know? Um, and I that's also and I have been known to be one of those white women that took an eligible black man from the community. So I also <laughs> just have a current say something. <laughs> say something. What? Harley. Oh my God. I'm dead. I'm I've dead. literally been told that. So okay. I've also been called a home I just have myself, a little bit. So say that's the home wrecking part in my case. Listen, okay. Straight up home wrecking. Okay. <laughs> straight but up that, home wrecking since 1995 <laughs> since 1995 but that is truly what was that was the perception yeah, of her it's true yeah also and OJ the was so beloved 
And he was yeah. a celebrity of wealth and power and status. And she was a server from a fucking restaurant. Yep. Okay. Yep. Like, let's be real here. Also, the majority of black women polled. Now we're this, a lot of this research is targeted towards black females because that's the majority of the jury. Right. right. So the majority of black women who were polled blamed Nicole for staying in an abusive relationship and they yeah, lost respect for her as a person the more the prosecution talked about domestic violence. So just like Katie was saying, the backbone of the prosecution's case is all the domestic violence. And as the domestic violence was getting introduced, they were getting more and more frustrated with Nicole for not leaving. Yeah. I have so- oh. It's a, like a perfect storm. It is. It didn't help that they didn't like Marsha either. So. That's the next thing, right. Vinny. Oh. They... They strongly disliked Marsha and they did not trust her from the jump. At the time of the start of the trial, 75% of the black community in LA felt OJ could not have committed these crimes. And 78% of the white community in LA felt he was guilty. It's almost an even split. Yeah. Yikes. Um, so that's how they roll into trial. Trial starts September 26th of 1994. So think about this, okay? The crimes were committed in June of 1994, and we are in trial, trial of the century, four months after the incident. Yeah, I know. That's extremely fast. We see people go years, years, waiting and waiting and waiting. And this is the first, this kicks off the first of many mistakes made by the prosecution. This is the first huge one. They thought- that the defense would file motion after motion to get it delayed so that they could prepare themselves. And they purposefully did not. They just let the state go to trial as fast as possible. And that was a move. That Mm -hmm. was a completely, uh, that was a completely thought out strategic move so that they would not be ready. So the trial was overseen by judge Lance Ito, who really tops the list for me in terms of incompetent public officials. I yeah. would put him at the, like, I would put him sitting on top of like the little food guide pyramid yeah, of bad, really of like really, really, really incompetent people. He's really um, he, loved the attention, right? So like so much so that one day during the trial, the judge was quote unquote tied up in chambers because he was talking to Larry King, loved the attention. He really allowed the trial to turn into the circus that it became. He allowed cameras in the courtroom. He repeatedly failed to rein in the theatrical tactics of the defense. And if there's any blame to be placed on the inadequacy of the jury, it's Ito's fault. Oh, for sure. Marsha is the lead prosecutor for the people. And Chris Darden rolls up as second chair. And just like Katie said, people really thought that they brought him in because he's a black man and because the prosecution thought it would look better to the jury. Right. And they they all deny this. They all say that's not the case. But that is how it came off. And people people don't buy that excuse, especially given like how bad everything went. How about right. everything went specifically for him? They right. felt like he was thrown in. All right. Misdirection is the name of the game in this trial. Prosecution is totally confident, right? We have blood. We have the gloves. We have OJ's complete and total lack of an alibi. History of violent behavior just goes on and on and on. They are confident. And the defense in their opening argument mentioned Detective Mark Furman by name. He's the officer who finds the glove at Rockingham, just like we said in last episode. 
from the beginning, from the moment they open their mouths in the trial, they want you to know who he is and what his connection is to the case. The defense starts to introduce testimony about Mark having used racial slurs in the past as a police officer, specifically the N-word. Prosecution tried to block this from even going in. They wanted it stricken from the record. They said, you can't use this. Absolutely not. Chris Darden actually argued in open court saying that if you introduce this testimony, that is all the jury will focus on. If you introduce that this police officer in a separate incident used a racial epithet, that is all the jury will pay attention to. And he was right, but Ito allows it anyway. And Cochran uses that moment to clap back Mm -hmm. at Darden and is like, he says he is insulted by the comments made by Chris Darden and how it's demeaning to all black people and how black people get called those types of words every day and they deal with it and they're competent and they can handle it. And how dare you undermine a whole race of people? I mean, he is billboarding from the top that Chris Darden is not your friend. They, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. They villain and they villainized him. They, I mean, they ripped that poor thing a new one. They really did. And a lot of people said that Johnny Cochran was a hero of Chris Darden's. I mean, and he really, he hung him out to dry. Yeah. It's so sad. It's really sad too. His story is extremely sad. uh, It really is. And it like really ruined him too. Like he was not the same. Neither of them were the same after that trial. No. So this is the prosecution's timeline for the murders on June 12th, 1994. This is what they said happened. Nicole walks outside barefoot at 10 PM to greet Ron and receive the glasses from him. OJ is outside waiting to make his move. He strikes her with the butt end of a large knife on the right side of her head, and she quickly falls to the ground unconscious from the blow to her head. While she's down, Ron enters the walkway. He sees Nicole down and OJ over her. And as he gets closer to see what's going on, he sees OJ has a knife and Ron turns away, presumably to get help. OJ grabs him from behind and holds the knife up to the right side of his face. Ron had five knife poke wounds to the cheek. They think OJ was taunting him and holding the knife up to his face, basically threatening him. Ron begins to struggle to get free and OJ uses the knife to slit Ron's throat twice, once forward, once backward. Ron grabs him and stumbles forward, very likely ripping the glove off of OJ's hand in that moment. He falls forward into the metal security fence that surrounds the property, and he is stabbed repeatedly. He has numerous defensive wounds to his hands um, and slits in between his fingers. Like he was, he really was trying very hard to survive. He is then stabbed deeply in the right side of his abdomen. This severs his abdominal artery and that's it. That's the end of it. That there's no, he's got less than, he's got less than a minute to live at that point. And then you start to see the movement in between the bodies. So OJ is walking from Ron's body to Nicole's body and back and forth. So Katie mentioned the shoe prints in episode one, that these are the prints made by walking back and forth from the body. OJ moves from Ron to Nicole, where he stabs her repeatedly in the neck, almost to the point of decapitation. So he kills Ron first. He incapacitates Nicole, but he kills Ron first. He walks back to Ron to make sure he's dead. 
he then that's where you get the hair transfer. There were three of Nicole's hairs found on Ron's body. They say this is where it's happening. He's going from one to the other. Then OJ exits the scene in an even stride, a very calm walk um, with blood on the soles of his shoes out the back into the alleyway where the Bronco must have been parked. And there is blood from Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown and OJ Simpson in the Bronco and at the Rockingham house. Seems airtight, right? That's what the that's what the physical evidence tells us. That is exactly what happened. Nope. Okay. Even though that is definitely what happened, the prosecution begins to get pummeled with these horrible circumstances. First, the crime scene techs at the scene at Bundy were called out by the defense for not using proper protocol, just like Carly said with Barry Sheck. They're not changing their gloves. Some of them are not even wearing gloves. It's, it's a freaking bloodbath on the stand. They are, that's a terrible expression for this episode, (laughs) but it's so bad. It's like, they are, they're like, oh, I always wear gloves. And then they roll back the tape and Barry checks like, oh, you mean like right here? And they have no gloves on. I would like to pull a Karen. Like I need to speak to your supervisor. You have one job. You have one job. And it's to follow the protocol to collect the evidence in such a way. Like that's literally what all you do. Yeah, seriously. How? And because of the two locations, the two crime scenes, Bundy and Rockingham, because they they ended up declaring Rockingham a crime scene as soon as they found that glove. Mm-hmm. One detective collects blood at Bundy and then drove to Rockingham to collect the blood from that scene. And the defense immediately exploited this, saying that the detective who collected the blood at Bundy drove it to Rockingham to plant it on OJ Quinney's. Why didn't we think of that? Oh my gosh, why? So then Mark oh. Furman takes the stand and testifies about everything we said in episode one, how we found the Bronco, how we found the glove. And he is asked by the defense if he ever used racial slurs. And he says he has not. And what we don't know at this time is that a filmmaker has come forward and said she taped Mark Furman for a documentary about police reform and still has the tapes. And of course, Ito allows them to be played in open court. Great. Great. Thanks, Ito. They are awful. It is nothing but awful racist sentiments. The jury is intently listening. It's just, it's true racist. It's, it reminds me of like, yeah, truly saying something about being proud of like his like brutality and things like that too. Mm -hmm. And Furman has no follow-up obviously he has not like what the hell is he supposed to do so he starts invoking the fifth amendment against self-incrimination and he's not answering questions at all and while he's doing this f lee bailey gets the idea to ask him if he has ever planted evidence at a crime scene to which he responds fifth amendment that's where they lost the case so this whole time oj is watching the cameras and pulling faces for the camera. People would talk about him, the camera panning to him, and he would, you know, make some sort of intense, like looking face, whatever. And then the the camera would go away and he would just completely drop in Mm -hmm. posture and the whole thing. He's totally performing. The defense team is coordinating their outfits to match each other and be pleasing from all camera angles. This is a total concentrated strategy. And a couple um, jurors after the fact were like, I didn't like that. Like we noticed that 
We, mm-hmm. we noticed like how they were showboating and yeah. it did not help their case at all. A few jurors in specific were like, that did not win them points. So the prosecution, of course, at this point is desperate to attach the gloves to OJ. Even though the glove was at his house, they're still desperate to attach the glove to OJ. Yeah, and this so, is one of the mistakes that happens. This is a big oh, mistake. This is what makes them lose it right here. Like, I just don't understand. Chris Darden goes to Marsha and oh. says, I want to have OJ try on the glove in court to prove that Such it Such a mistake. It wasn't even his idea, though. He said that he thought the defense was going to have OJ do it. And okay. he wanted to be the one. Yes, because, and I forget which one it was, I think it might've been Bailey, had said to him or near him that he was going to have OJ do it. So Darden was like, we'll do it Mm -hmm. to not let them do it. But the defense only did that to plant the seed to make Darden do it because they knew it wasn't going to turn out great. Exactly. Which is brilliant, but pisses me right off. Yeah, because they were literally just, again, taking advantage of the little rookie that didn't know what he was doing. It worked. And Hims was just trying so hard to have Hims's first successful trial, okay? It's so heartbreaking. Like, it's, this it is like, sucks. Oh, this is like why oh. I am so 50-50 about it, Quinny's. Like, yeah. if you're going to work in a prosecutor's office and you're going to put people away for life, for crimes and you're going to like decide what happens to them for the rest of their lives, you better be good at your job. Oh, yeah. if you're yeah. not, on your shit. You like on your shit. Oh, yeah, 100%. Just, I know, but I do. I also feel an incredible amount of sympathy for him because I do. it's horrible. Same. It's so underhanded. It and the whole country is watching. Chris goes to Marsha because again, he is second chair. He is not, he has to obey her. She has total lead of this prosecution. And he says, I want to have him try on the glove. And Marsha is like, no, absolutely not. And Darden says the defense is going to do it. The defense, they're going to do it. They are going to have him try it on and we have to get ahead of it. And she said, let them, let them do it. And we'll counter. We will go back to the facts of where the glove was found. We'll go back to the DNA evidence. We have this, like we do not need to do this. And he says, okay. And then they get into court and he does it anyway. I need to know like what the repercussions professionally, besides obviously losing the case. Like I need to know, like, are there consequences within his job? You know what I mean? Like what, then what's the point of having her be the lead then? Because apparently you're just going to do whatever the hell you want. Right. If he, it's totally, totally inappropriate. Like little shit. He, if you watch the footage, her face when he stands up and says, I'd like Mr. Simpson to try on the glove is like, I will be murdering you directly after this. The look on her face is just like you colossal idiot. She knew, she knew it immediately. She She was like, well, you just threw that. So thank you so much for that. Thanks Um, for throwing that one right in the freaking garbage. So as soon as he puts on the latex gloves, right? And he puts his hand into the glove. And as soon as he does it, he stands up and immediately starts this like dramatic silent monologue. It's so so fucking awkward. I can't get this glove on. I just, I don't understand. It like begins basically like fighting with the glove. Later on, his agent, Mike Gilbert, would say that they told OJ to stop taking his arthritis meds so that his joints would swell and they couldn't pin the glove on him. 
or was he just totally faking and trying to stretch his hand out? Or was it the fact that he had latex gloves on underneath this glove, which are already going to make it too small? And the glove had blood on it and then had dried. So like, obviously it was going to be a tight fit. Yeah. Because leather. Yeah. But also him letting OJ come up without, without doing, um, what's it called? Jocelyn. Yeah. Um, Without swearing him in. Swearing him in. Thank you. Yes. So it's not really testimony, is it? Right. No, it should have been stricken from the record. Um, He never took an oath. Yeah. It's like almost fake. But again, Ito's like, wow, this is great TV. And then one of the jurors after the fact talks to ESPN and said, if he had never tried on that glove, she would have assumed it fit. It looked the right size for his hand. 100%. So in closing arguments, Marsha Clarks knew that she had completely lost the jury. She knew that they were listening with half an ear. She knew that they did not have a prayer. In the defense's closing argument, this is where we get, just like Carly said, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Oh, it's like a commercial. It's like it's her glove don't fit. You must acquit. If the glove don't fit, he basically made the final argument more about whether or not you are a racist and not about whether OJ committed a crime. He went into the territory of comparing world war ii and hitler oh yeah he went there he went to straight to adolf hitler and he he just used uh racial injustice as the capstone of the entire defense just misdirection right so we're not talking about nicole or ron or the circumstances surrounding their death anymore we're talking about the bigger racial picture right which Which also wasn't the dumbest okay but which wasn't the dumbest strategy ever because of the times just like because of the times it actually was a fucking hell of a strategy to go with that Mm -hmm. in order to win a trial but really but you're right it had nothing to do with anything the homeboy officer Furman or whatever the hell his name is had no, has nothing to do with Nicole and Ron being dead in the freaking house. Okay. Like, let's take that to a separate trial and have him in trouble for that, for a different thing, because it's disgusting and wrong. It never, ever should have been allowed. It never should have been allowed. Really? It shouldn't have. It's irrelevant to that particular case. Yeah. And it's also just really messed up because it's true. It is true. It is. There are, there are a lot of racist individuals in law enforcement. There's a lot of racist individuals in the world Mm -hmm. and that's real. Like that's a real thing. It's just, it's so, it's so infuriating because that's not what the, what this trial was. And they sent the jury to deliberate these jurors, man. They sat through 267 days of trial. They were sequestered, meaning they could not watch television. They had to stay in a hotel. They couldn't talk to anyone about the case. There was national coverage of the trial, so they didn't have any type of entertainment to enjoy, not allowed to speak to their families. They were done and they wanted to go home. And I do not blame them for that. Something really interesting that F. Lee Bailey said, he said that the defense the entire time was waiting for the prosecution to pose a very specific question. If Mark Furman planted evidence to frame OJ Simpson on the night of June 12th, he would have had to have known 
that OJ had no alibi. Hmm. And how could he possibly have no, known that? that? Right. Hmm. And the defense waited the entire trial for that question to be asked. And it was never asked. They just weren't prepared. They no. just were not prepared. No. And she also says, Marsha also talked to you about um, if it was in one of her books or one, you know, cause she goes on to do so much media mm-hmm. and she does a bunch of shows and wrote a bunch of books and just all the things. But somewhere she mentioned about, just like you were kind of saying earlier, Quinny, is that it happened so quickly. They went to trial so fast that she didn't get to even, they couldn't, they didn't even get to build a team. She was like, if we would have had a chance, I would have gotten the best prosecuting lawyers in the fucking whole world, you know, because they had all of this evidence. They had over 500 pieces of fucking evidence, but they, they didn't have any time to put it into its, they didn't have any time to put it into its story, into its, its form. And so exactly. She just never got the chance from the beginning. I'm like, maybe she could have picked someone who would have like, you know, taken her lead and listened to her maybe also. It was a huge breach in protocol right? for him to do that. Less than four hours after they are sent into deliberations, they come back with a verdict. OJ was found not guilty the murders of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman, and he was free to go home. One of the jurors stood up in the jury box as they filed out and held up a fist in a black power gesture before he exited. Meanwhile, there's riot police all over the city waiting, just waiting to see what kind of verdict is going to come down because they were anticipating violence. And this was like a citywide block party celebration in the streets people are cheering dancing um you know waving signs playing music it's like the happiest celebrity rich powerhouse and not for the two victims who don't have their lives anymore yeah meanwhile the goldmans are hysterically crying and like yeah it's just ruined like they're cheering for a philanderer. They're cheering for an abuser. They're cheering for a um, stalker. They're cheering for a murderer. How? How? It's the power, really How? the power of celebrity. Testament to the it power is. of celebrity. It is. It really is. It's really, but really like, true. And it still happens, happens to this day. But this it happened still with- happens to this day. So after the verdict comes down, Shapiro and his eyebrows go on Barbara Walters. Barbara. Yeah, I can't. He says it was, quote, unethical for Johnny Cochran to use race in this case. Like, okay, dude, sure, fine. You literally wrote the defense with Mm -hmm. these people. You literally, like, you you were right there, right in it, totally involved. Yes, Johnny Cochran took over and took, took the lead essentially away from you, but he was better at it than you are. Yeah. He was hurt. His pride was hurt. Really? You're going to go on Barb and just be like, oh, yeah, that was unethical. Like, great. Cool, dude. You have blood on your hands. So don't don't get it twisted. In 1997, that Fred Goldman filed a civil trial lawsuit against since OJ Simpson. Uh, David Cook becomes the attorney for the Goldmans and he gets together a little team too and this jury was very different and they find him guilty and they award the goldman family with a 33 million dollar settlement well they don't ever get this money 
No. They never see the money. The money never comes. These attorneys have spent years of their entire, of their lives. They're still fighting. David Cook is still fighting to this day for this family. These attorneys came from all over to like help him um, win this case. And it's a really beautiful story. It was finally the time that the Goldman's like got some real justice, but in the same vein, it didn't make them look so good to the Browns either because it made them look very money hungry and it made them look like they were just out to get money when really, I mean, I don't, I can't speak for them, but it seems to me as this, as though they just wanted to get some kind of justice. Absolutely. But in the same vein, it's like, you know, how do you get that other than money really once the, you know, it's like, it's very, it's tough. It's a tough yeah, I feel like in a criminal trial, your punishment is that your time is taken away. In a civil trial, your money is taken away. Yeah. So it's like, it's still taking away from your life and your freedom, but it's just in a different way. You know what really pisses me off about that civil trial is that it wasn't televised. Mm-hmm. Let yeah. the people hear this shit. Yes. Let them hear it. Let them hear. You don't have anything to hide. So Carly, what about Nicole's family? I mean, they're devastated as well, obviously, especially um, her sisters. Um, Denise and Tanya, they become domestic violence activists. They're trying to raise awareness for people. Also during the civil trial, like Katie just talked about, the Brown family was actually supposed to get $25 million. Okay. They didn't get any of that either. Technically, they said like they didn't want the money because obviously First of all, no amount of money is going to bring Nicole and Ron back, right? Right. But also their money was just going to be going to the estate of like Nicole's estate, which would have just gone to Cindy and Justin. So like they weren't trying to get the money for themselves. They were just going to give it to the kids anyway. Right. But they didn't get anything regardless. You know, while they were, they felt vindicated, they felt vindicated that he at least lost the trial and was supposed to give them the money. They were still like, you know. It doesn't really matter. They're not going to come back anyway, but at least something was done in some way. There was actually another case that was done. It was Nicole's parents versus representatives of Sydney and Justin's estate. Um, B. Wayne Hughes, he was the guardian of the kids estate and that he demanded that the Browns repay the children for the profits made from selling Nicole's belongings. So Hughes claimed that the children were entitled to $100,000 that the Browns had made when they sold Nicole's diaries to the National Enquirer, $162,000 that they received from the sale of photographs and um, videotape of the wedding between Nicole and OJ, and any other money that the Browns or their children made from the sale or use of Nicole's personal property. And OJ, in the wake of Nicole's death, would actually gain custody back for the children Um, But the Browns had fought for custody. So Hughes also saw an additional $6,665. However, that added up, I don't understand. Of the estate money that the Browns um, spent in their unsuccessful bid for custody for the children. Mm. (laughs) And the repayment of a $50,000 loan that he said Nicole made to her father shortly before her death. So he is going after every single possible dime that he can try to get. Wow. Yes. 
Yes. The Goldman's are also doing that too. They're all doing, so that's what they're all doing now too, is now they're just stripping him of they everything just keep going. Yes. Yeah. So they every. ended up settling. Lewis, Nicole's father, he would start the Nicole Brown Simpson Charitable Foundation for victims of domestic violence, um, but he would later die of Alzheimer's disease at age 90. Yeah. Tanya, her youngest sister, who she was really close with, she would get into prescription drugs a little bit and she actually attempted suicide in 2004 um, but she is now a mental health slash self-care advocate she's an author um, and she's a mental health coach and public speaker she has her own website and like you can contact her for coaching services and everything like that um, Nicole's mother Judy died in November of 2020 and OJ had the audacity to post about it on social media and do like a little tribute video and saying like oh r.i.p we lost one of the good ones like you're the best judy psycho cannot like, what stay away don't drink cannot. the juice like how dare you don't drink the juice okay don't drink the juice don't don't do it so the family is just not you know they're never going to get Nicole back and they're devastated. So OJ is a free man and he thinks that he is just going to go right back to life as it was. Right. So I'll just go back to Brentwood, go back to my same social circle, go back to everything that I do and it'll be fine. And he's completely wrong. He's essentially shunned by the entire L.A. community because he murdered his wife and got away with it. And there are people picketing outside of his house. There's people picketing while he's out playing golf. He can't go anywhere. People are screaming at him, you know, get out of here, you murderer and all these things. That's interesting considering how many people were cheering for his acquittal. Yeah. You know, it really is. But again, he didn't live in the yeah. communities that came to support him. Yeah, he true. lived in a very wealthy white area. So just like Katie said, after the civil suit, he starts hiding all of his possessions with family members. So like, hey, can you fill up your house with my stuff so that the Goldman's can't get it? He's yeah. getting random storage units. He sets yes. up several dummy corporations to protect his house, protect other assets. Meanwhile, the IRS starts taking a hard look at his finances and, and he loses his house in Brentwood because of paying for back taxes. Quinnies, I have this in bold in my outline, okay? Why don't people just fucking pay their taxes? If you don't pay your taxes, it will come back later on and be more expensive than if you just pay your fucking taxes. What is that? Also, what I don't understand is that, yes, you're right. Like, why aren't you not paying your taxes? But you cannot tell me that OJ is filing his own damn taxes himself. Exactly. So what pay is, somebody to do it. So I'll, like pay someone to do it. They'll be done right. They'll pay the taxes. Everything will be done. Like you have I people can't. to do everything else for you. Like why? You must have a financial advisor. So like, wouldn't that person potentially do your taxes or have someone in there? And he's just like, oh, I, oh, what? I what? didn't, I had no idea that I wasn't. I had no idea. What? Listen, taxes. okay. Just pay your taxes. All right. I know it sucks. 
and it is expensive, but they will, they will come after your ass the moment that they find out. So just do it. So OJ is not doing well in Brentwood and his house was taken away from him. So he moves to South beach, Miami with his kids. However, by all accounts, he spends most of his time without them. He's spending almost no time with them. He is out whining and dining people. He's doing events. He is living off of his NFL pension, which was also untouchable in the yeah, civil he's suit. Just out, yeah, he's just out being a celebrity and living his normal life. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, those aren't his only kids. No. Okay. No, and he's not even the kid. The children who are with him, the children that he had with Nicole, are are you know he's out. He developed a cocaine habit. He's partying yeah. hard during this yeah. time, and he's he moved not away from his uh, oldest two. Yeah, and yes. he's not and not supporting them. Doing- this is about when OJ is approached to do a reality show called Juiced. This is a hidden camera show. I cannot. It's got bits with OJ selling oranges on the side of the highway. They have him working as a drive-thru employee. Um, They have him as an Elvis impersonator. He goes in full. Like what the actual fuck? He goes in full white face and prosthetics and is dressed up as an old man, like trashing a hotel room at one point. He also produces an exceptionally bad rap video, which is all titties, just just all <laughs> boobs, all like it's literally OJ Simpson sitting on a throne surrounded by topless women. Um, and I will drop some of that audio in it so uh, that you can hear his terrible rap. Juiced is on YouTube, by the way. I, I do kind of recommend that you watch it because it's it's really it's like really bad TV and it's yeah. just like very cringy and um, it just gives you an idea of his like of his state of mind at the time. Then he starts getting in touch with a publisher named Judith Regan to write a book called If I Did It, which Katie will get into. Oh, yeah. So oh he writes a book. Okay, this is so confusing. <sighs> like, I just can't. Like, so he writes a book, which is a first person account of how he would have done the murder. If so he narcissistic. It's absurd. If he were to commit the murders, this is what he would do. So this is what I did by OJ Simpson. And so now here's where it gets crazier too. In August of 2007, the Goldman family was awarded the rights to the book, Vinny's. Okay. They were granted the proceeds from the book as part of the multi-million dollar civil jury award against him. Mm -hmm. They had been trying to collect for all of over a decade now at this point. Okay. So since 97, but it's just so strange to me. And so this is, and so this is what starts happening. They start getting rights to a bunch of his shit. So, and like you said, the Browns do too. Like they get, the Browns get this right to this Mm -hmm. and then the Goldman's get this right to this and so on and so forth. And it goes on and they're just like, slowly handing people over all of OJ shit 
they acquired his name. They acquired the Simpsons name. They acquired his life story and any profits or publicity that came from it, they, it all goes to the Goldman's. They renamed the book too. So they renamed the book. If I did it, confessions of the killer. So <laughs> yeah, they, they put a colon like, after the title and colon, said confessions exactly. of the killer. Confessions of it. the killer. So it's literally like exactly like you just said, like they made it that okay, this is exactly what you actually exactly. did when you killed them. And wow. then they took the word if and made it really, really tiny and yes. put it inside of the I. Yes. No. Yes. So you can and, see and literally yes. like if you look at the cover from like at a quick glance, it's just, I did it confessions of the killer. But so here's where, this is where love Denise it. Brown ended up getting it. really upset and getting yeah. really pissed. And the Browns got mad is because they end up publishing it. Yeah. And they publish it through this company through Buford books and the family gets upset and they get really hurt. And they're like, why would you do that? Like, we don't understand. Yeah. And she completely criticized them and felt like it's just you guys trying to profit from Ron and Nicole's death. And that's the only reason that you're really doing it. I'm not going to lie. I totally agree. I understand like the Goldman's are, you know, dealing with their own grief and their own, you know, they want some sort of justice. And like, if it's monetary, then fine. And and I'm sure they know that money is not going to bring Ron back anyway. And it's, and this Whatever. is where the drama comes like, into play. This is where the beef uh, comes into play too, right? But the because yeah. get this, the Goldmans hit back at the Browns and they're like, yo, screw you because you were doing the same shit when mm-hmm. OJ was beating Nicole and you knew that she was being beat and OJ paid you off with the Hertz dealership that they gave to the Browns mm-hmm. that he bought for the Browns or whatever, right? Because, you know, we had mentioned in the first episode that the, there was a Brown that was running a develop one of the Hertz her father uh, locations the father right was running one of the locations and in fact OJ had like pretty much given it to him so the Goldman's kind of they rebuttaled with that like sort of like no you're not going to come at us with like money digging when you were doing the same thing you know and they kind of blame and it's like now they're blaming each other you know like you knew that she was being abused and you could have done something about it kind of before yeah. and this yeah. is how the beef between these families like and it sucks but it like, really think awful. about this but think about this and granted, like, no, like maybe don't take a bunch of jobs from your daughter or sister's abuser. You know what I mean? Like, maybe don't do that. But he is at that point, he had still been her husband, the father of their grandkids. Right. You can't like, unfortunately, a lot of people aren't going to just be like, I'm calling the cops on you every day. And Nicole's just going to stay with you, but I'm, I don't want to see my grandkids ever. So I'm just going to call the cops on you every day, even though Nicole doesn't seem to have a problem on this particular day. You know what I mean? She called the cops herself. She did what she could when she could do it. Right. Like I am not blaming her in any capacity and no, they shouldn't have taken nice cushy job from him or whatever. Unfortunately, the family of someone being abused can only do so much. Over the years, they both, the families, they try to do their parts. You know, the Goldman family takes the portions of the book and they end up um, starting a foundation for Ron, the Ron Goldman Foundation for Justice, which gives grants to multiple organizations and programs that give resources to victims and survivors of violent crimes or domestic violence. So that's really cool. This is just another example of the massive ripple effect of when somebody kills someone. 
Exactly. You like before you do something stupid, just remember that like these people have been playing out this drama for 20 something years after the fact and like the incompetence at the justice system level, the whole thing. And just all the way from OJ Simpson going to that house that night, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's really far reaching effects. It's terrible. It is definitely. Um, So OJ was living in Miami, but he ends up going to Vegas. Got to. Gotta Why go not? to Vegas. Why not? Why not? That's Gotta a great place if you're dressing up as an Elvis impersonator. That's a great place if you're addicted to cocaine. Go to Las Vegas. Sitting, the they they never sleep. You go to Las Vegas, the city looks exactly the same at three o'clock in the morning as it does three o'clock it's in a, the afternoon. It's a cokehead's dream. It never shuts down. <laughs> so OJ is, he's in Vegas and he gets into a little bit of trouble. So he, OJ ends up leading a group of men into a room in the Palace Station Hotel, okay, in Las Vegas. This room is occupied by Bruce Fromong. Is that? I yeah, think I think that's so. How he said it? Fromong. Fromong. He is a sports memorabilia dealer, okay? OJ and friends break into the room and they steal some of the memorabilia, okay, at gunpoint. So the memorabilia was items that OJ had lost while trying to hide them from Ron Goldman's family during the civil case. So he, OJ had gotten information from another memorabilia dealer, Alfred Beardley, that Fremong had some of his items. And OJ claimed that the items had been stolen from him. Like, first of all, which is it, OJ? Did you lose them or did they get stolen or like what? Yeah, like, okay, oh, like, can yeah. we chill? Oh, you he mean you, kept you told accusing different- his agent of like pilfering them yeah. off of him throughout the whole time so like he's taking the heisman he's taking right. all of these things sure. yeah he keeps saying it was his agent oh you mean you tell three different stories for the same thing just like you do for every Everything. other fucking thing so oj devises a plan to get them back when he's in vegas for a wedding and he recruits some of his friends that were also wedding guests okay so like can you imagine like oh yes. this like are they at the rehearsal dinner? And OJ's like, hey guys, listen, let's all get some guns and go up into this hotel and steal some of my stuff. Okay. And these guys are like, yeah, OJ, let's. And OJ's like, we'll do a bunch of cocaine and drink a bunch <laughs> of orange juice and then we'll go up yes. there. So OJ and company, they enter the room at 7.38 PM. OJ promptly orders his group to not allow anyone to leave the room. OJ and Beardsley argue where the memorabilia came from. And during this, OJ's friend, Michael McClinton, is threatening for wrong with a gun. Like, so just, we're just all doing great. OJ's group, they get the items that they're there for. They stuff the items along with some autographed baseballs and lithographs that have nothing to do with OJ whatsoever. They stuff all these things into pillowcases and they immediately return to the Palm Casino Resort. Okay. The whole thing takes six minutes. They're in and out. The day after, OJ brushes off the allegations saying, I'm OJ Simpson. How am I going to think that I'm going to rob somebody and get away with it? Besides, I thought what happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. Oh, goodness. He says, you've got to understand, this ain't something, this ain't somebody going to steal somebody's drugs or something like that. This is somebody going to get his private belongings back. That's it. That's not robbery. 
Okay, let me explain something to you, okay? Let me explain something to our audience at large, okay? (laughs) If you ever tell someone that they can't leave or threaten them if they choose to leave and you do not let them leave, that is kidnapping. Exactly. That is a felony. And most states, that is a minimum of 10 years. So, hey, you don't want somebody to leave? Too bad. Do not ever hold someone somewhere for any reason against their will. It is a huge price to pay once you go to court. This is armed robbery, dude. Yeah. And like, granted, okay. he's not, he is not holding a gun. Right. Sure. You're not right. holding a gun, but you're still under threat of violence holding yeah. somebody in a room. Like and the other guy has a gun. So three days later, September 16th, OJ is arrested and he's initially held without bail. Um, he admits to taking the items, which he said had been stolen from him, but he denies breaking into the room. Um, he also denied the allegation that he or the people with him carried weapons and bail is then later set at $125,000. So October 3rd, 2008, my birthday, exactly 13 years, exactly to the day after he's acquitted of the murders of Nicole and Ron, he's found guilty of 12 charges. A jury of nine women and three men unanimously found him guilty after more than 13 hours of deliberation. Count one, conspiracy to commit a crime. Count two, conspiracy to commit kidnapping. Count three, conspiracy to commit robbery. Count four, burglary while in possession of a deadly weapon. Count five, first degree kidnapping with use of a deadly weapon. Count six, first degree kidnapping with use of a deadly weapon. So the first one is for Bruce and the other, and the second one is for Alfred Beardsley. Count seven, robbery with use of a deadly weapon for Bruce. Count eight, robbery with use of deadly weapon for Beardsley. Count nine, assault with a deadly weapon for Bruce. Count 10, assault with a deadly weapon for Beardsley. Karma's a bitch. Like, oh my God. Count 11, coercion with a deadly weapon for Bruce. And then 12, coercion with a deadly weapon for Beardsley. So like Jocelyn said, you cannot order anyone to not let someone leave the room because that is literally kidnapping. So December 5th, 2008, OJ was sentenced to 33 years in prison with eligibility for parole in nine years, meaning October, 2017. And on July 20th, 2017, OJ was granted parole and was freed three months later. He's just out posting on social media, doing what he wants to do. I have a real problem with that whole 2008 yeah. situation. I really do. It's, it's really, um, it feels very vindictive and like payback for him being found not guilty. Like that's, that sentence is mind blowing. And I agree that he should have been found guilty in 1994 and he should have like that absolutely should have happened. But I, I really don't like I don't know, some of the racism that he talked about, that his defense team talked about in the first trial, it's hard to ignore that element in the 2008. Mm-hmm. So uh, obviously this is super famous, this whole case. And Katie's going to talk about some of the depictions in the media of OJ. There's an investigative discovery mo- movie documentary called The OJ Trial of the Century, which it was covered the days of the trial and it ends on the readings of the final verdicts investigation discovery also has 
the real story of O.J. Simpson, which entirely comprises archival news footage of the media case. Boris Kodjo will portray Simpson in Joshua Newton's film, Nicole and O.J., which is going to center around a tumultuous relationship between the two of them. And it plans to argue of O.J.'s innocence. That's due to come out. Yeah. Oh, okay, um, cool. We don't need any more of we that. Don't we, we've it. heard that argument and it was successful and we yeah, don't need to right. hear it again. So thank you so much for making a movie about nothing. Thank you. No one, no one fucking cares. Exactly. Then the one of the most famous is the documentary miniseries OJ Made in America that was directed by Ezra Edelman. And it's it was, so good. It's it is wicked, so good. Wicked, wicked, wicked good. And it won a bunch of shit. It was it like went to Tribeca and the Sundance Film Festivals. The, it won the, an Academy Award in 2017 for the best documentary feature. If they get everyone to talk to. They have a bunch of the defense team talking, all the ones that are still alive, a bunch of the defense team talking, and F. Lee Bailey is there with his his face is now permanently red from all the whiskey that he's drank. Yes. And he's just like yes. talking about like all it's incredible to see. It really <laughs> okay. is. These are a couple cool little fun facts I found too. So there's also a couple exhibits of Bro- the Bronco Chase is on display in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Okay. Isn't that where Dollywood is? Yeah, Tennessee. I gotta get my ass to Tennessee. It's Tennessee's Alcatraz East Crime Museum. And they have it, they have OJ's fucking chase where they just like show it. Okay. Wow. That's crazy. So I thought that was kind of cool. And then what's the one from FX? Oh, there's Um, that we that we were watching with Justine. People versus OJ Simpson. That American I really, I thought that was a lot of fun. There's a little mini series from Law and Order's True Crime, the Menendez murders, and they actually bring that, they tie it together, like where they, they show OJ Simpson next being jailed besides Eric Menendez, and they share these conversations. We're just really crazy, all the shit that they have made. Quinnies. Okay. Remember, I told you we were going to bring it back to Casey Anthony. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to do this to you, Ugh. but remember that time that Casey Anthony compared herself to OJ in People magazine? Remember that? Yeah. yeah. Let's just look forget? at a few a few comparisons between Casey Anthony and OJ. Okay. Another time I just Both? vomited everywhere. <laughs> Here's your fucking, <laughs> fucking gas can. I wonder how many times OJ ran out of gas. Uh, that if I was ever to talk Ooh. to him, I would be like, "Hey, did you ever have a problem with running out of gas all the time?" Apparently, he didn't because he went on a slow chase in a Bronco, Jocelyn. Saving right. gas, saving the gas, ma'am. Saving gas. Okay. Um. Okay. So let's just look at a few things that they share. Okay. So both of them possibly lost a daughter in a pool accident or in Casey's case that's just her public line and her defense same age daughter the same age yes same age oh thank you for reminding me of that okay so yes possibly lost a daughter of the same age in a pool accident or in Casey's case that's just what she says now they are both they both were found not guilty in major murder trials with shocking verdicts that people were not anticipating uh, both are surrounded by friends and family who are total enablers, 100%. Both have acting careers, or Casey will, as soon as she produces As I Was Told. 
her quote unquote true account of what happened to Kaylee. Okay, waiting for that film. Let's let's show that film and the film where OJ is supposed to be portrayed as innocent. Just back to back feature. Let's do it. Really compliment each other. And both of them love Florida. <laughs> no, it's so wild. They're both the worst ever. That's ever. the other comparison. That that's, is that's the basically. other similarity that they are the freaking worst. So we're going to get into some final thoughts and theories about what went on here. Quinny's we have gotten so much feedback about this case from our audience. So thank you very much. People have been blowing up our YouTube, our Facebook. I've been getting direct messages. Jocelyn, did you know that this is actually what happened? Um, And a lot of people say that OJ had an accomplice. This is a really big one. Mm. I've heard this from a lot of people. Okay. And so I decided to look into it a little bit. And in 2018, Fox aired a special called OJ Simpson, the lost confession. And they played clips from a 2006 interview he did with publisher Judith Regan when he was supposed to release if I did it before, basically before it got taken away from him. Yeah. And he keeps mentioning someone named Charlie and how Charlie was with him during the murders. Of course, if he did it, if, if I did it, um, Simpson's attorney, Malcolm Laverne, who is a right well piece of human garbage. He is, uh, oh, Kim Goldman has a whole uh, has a whole episode basically devoted to him on her podcast, Confronting O.J. Simpson. And oh. he is truly it was it, I almost couldn't get through it. I was just so yeah, enraged. The worst. Oh, the worst of all time. Um, his attorney, Malcolm Laverne, who is his attorney, assists that uh, this was all scripted by the publisher, Judith Regan, that she had him say these things and OJ went along with it because he was getting paid well. Simpson said that Charlie told him, quote, you wouldn't believe what's going on over there, referring to Nicole's home at Bundy Drive. He said he and Charlie went there on the night of June 12th, 1994, and Charlie took the knife from under the seat of the Bronco. He said that when Ron came upon them, he tried to do karate at him. Okay, this is a direct quote. And at some point, OJ took the knife from Charlie, but he doesn't remember much other than, quote, blood and stuff being all around. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I have so many things to say. The karate? Really? Okay, you're telling me that a world-renowned, award-winning Heisman Trophy recipient football player is going to karate at someone and not just take him down like the halfback he was no he was saying that ron did karate at him okay i'm like no no (laughs) like defend it's like in a defense mechanism yeah you're like okay you're doing karate now like what like are you kidding me are you okay i'm sorry i completely misunderstood that no it's very confusing he said that ron did karate at him like to defend himself gotcha okay thank you okay but also yeah but also but also the charlie thing this is another mary vincent oh the other lawrence it was the yes. other Lawrence that did. Yes, it. the imaginary person that doesn't fucking okay. exist. Except Quinny, but didn't they find that there was a possible other footprint, possibly that looked, or did they find a shoe print that could possibly have been a different shoe? There was the DNA too under Nicole's fingernails. Yeah, that One was not. That was not, not OJ's and not Ron's, right? Yeah. Right. 
And then they also, but also that's the thing. I think the shoe print was like not a hundred percent. Like they were like, it could be a different shoe, but it could also be the same shoe. And again, right? the the crime scene text, the CSTs were not doing a good job no. here. So no, like they, they could have walked through it. And I know that most of the time at the at a scene, you you can walk through it and then you just surrender your shoes. Because if you do that, they can just take the impressions and rule out that causing any sort of, you know, issue, whatever. But yeah, nope. Okay. No, 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 no. I know I've, I, we've gotten a lot of feedback about this, about OJ having a second accomplice. Um, I do not buy this for one second. Let's roll no. back the true crime history Rolodex. Okay. Let's just name a few of the prolific serial killers who said it wasn't them, but it was their imaginary <laughs> friend. Okay. John Wayne Gacy said that his murders were committed by someone named Jack Handley. Kenneth Bianchi, one of the Hillside Stranglers, said his murders were committed by Steve, which just kills me. Steve. Just kills me. Um, Arthur Shawcross, maybe one of the worst serial killers of all time, the Genesee River Killer. He spoke to several imaginary friends during his crimes, and he uses specific voices for each. Haddon Clark, who we will definitely cover because yeah. he's from Troy, Quinnies. Okay. He dressed as a woman when he committed murders and yes. he insisted only on being called Kristen and that Kristen was the murderer. So this is just, again, and just like Carly said with Mary Vincent, oh, it was the other Lewis. Like these yeah. are just a few. OJ Simpson is just another dickhead who won't fess up. So Quinny's, this has been a really, this has been a quite a stressful and upsetting couple of episodes <laughs> and just rage inducing in so many ways. But what are, what are our final thoughts on OJ Simpson and this whole unbelievable saga around the deaths of these two innocent people? It fucking sucks. I hate it every day that he's fucking just out there. There's no question. There's just no question. There ain't a question. And I honestly, like, I understand the argument for an accomplice, but I just don't think he would have needed one slash wanted one. He wanted Nicole for himself or he wanted to take her out himself, period. And Ron just happened to be there. So unfortunately he took him out too. Yeah. Ron screws the whole accomplice theory for me Yeah, yeah. because he didn't even want Ron to be there. Ron right. just showed up. Ron just happened to be in a, in the wrong place at the wrong time, mm -hmm. yeah. you know? So he just showed up and because he was there, it was just a byproduct of he's now seen what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So I have to deal with this. So like, yeah, no, I, I don't see it. I don't see it as two killers. I see it as OJ Simpson finally saying that he is going to put an end to this mm -hmm. once and for all. And as far as the robbery and the his life after this trial i mean it is ridiculous points. and it's over the top but you can kind of see how he thought he was fucking untouchable he got away with it he literally said the day after the robbery i'm oj simpson and he got away with this shit and he literally spends now spends every day continuing just to live that same exact way that he is the best of the best. Even Queen. just to, like I, even just mentioning him and having people be like, oh, he was an amazing football player. I'm like, just all right. It. Just get out. Of just here. let it go. We know. But that is not. And we don't care. Queen, you and have we to don't talk care. about Quinny really quick. You have to talk about the suitcase really quick. Queen. Oh, my God. Okay. 
big shout out to Kim Goldman for dropping this one in her podcast. It's a little tidbit of information I found super interesting. So when OJ went to Chicago on that night, he had four duffel bags with him. He came back from Chicago with three. What happened to the fourth fourth duffel bag? Mm. What happened to it? We don't know. We haven't known for years. We have no idea. It was never discussed in trial because, again, there's some fucking conspiracy theories on that one, Benny's. And of course, they have no murder weapon. The knife was never found either. Kim Goldman is approached by Kim Kardashian's team in 2016, and they say we're cleaning out some belongings from Bob that have been stored over the years, Bob Kardashian, lifelong friend of OJ. And there's a duffel bag that we thought you might be interested in. So Kim responds and says, yes, I am. And how do you want to do this? How can we meet with you? And she wants to get the police involved immediately because if there's new evidence, then maybe she can finally get justice for her brother. And they never, ever called her back. What would be the point then? Did they reach out to her in the first place? You know, I think they probably got spooked by the, by getting the police involved right up, right from the get, you know, because then they're, they're implicated, then they're involved in it. And I think what they were trying to do was say, Hey, if you want this, we'll give it to you. But I don't think they wanted themselves to get involved. Sure. But again, Quinny's Bob yeah, Kardashian was right there. PR go down. No, definitely not. And he was right there by his side reading and that they letter. Were they were personally friends. Like Very they were well. personally tight. Friends. Like. But then they had the falling out after. But were they hot? Did they know stuff? Why somebody got to be fucking texting me right now? Seriously. So what do you think could have been in the duffel? anything it could have been any number of things it could have been stuff that he asked kardashian to hold mm-hmm. when you know when all the shit went down maybe that, it was it some could, memorabilia it could be as simple as memorabilia. that it could be it some could, sports memorabilia likely pictures of himself it yeah. could be as simple as that yeah. because again if it was trying to be hidden from the goldmans when it was rightfully it, theirs they could say hey here you can have this stuff like he mm-hmm. was actively trying to hide this from you you can have it it mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily have to include a murder weapon right. or something right. that has evidentiary value but it ain't shed the best right it also doesn't shed the best light over on the kardashians for a minute sorry but. and listen Listen, I love that family, okay? I'm not going to sit here on our podcast right now and hate on the Kardashians because I don't dislike them. I think they're good people. I really do. I think they I mean, they well. have nothing to do with it, obviously. But like, I think that you know, just like when he said, I, in our, one of our favorite sayings around here, it's something ain't clean with that. And mm-hmm. I think that there might be some things hidden a little bit in the shadows, a little bit with that. The thing is, though, Quinny's he has no alibi I I just continue to go back to that for all of the things that he could have done the the, his lifestyle always wanting to be around people and he lies like always being at events always wanting to like do these things like to have that window of time that exact window of time where nobody can place you uh, no 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 and to leave your kids in that house until somebody found 
those victims knowing that they could have woken up and walked downstairs. You know, you know, it's just, it's beyond. It's they could totally have heard beyond. It is beyond. You know what I mean? They could have seen something. They could have heard something. So honestly, we're lucky that this isn't a Chris Watts situation. Absolutely. 100% because maybe he went there to intimidate her. Maybe he went there with a weapon to say, I, I'm, we're going to get back together and you're going to obey me and we're going right. to, you're not going to see other right. men and you're not going right. to whatever and stop all this shit. And it went wrong. Ah. He did it. Quinny's. He absolutely he did straight it. did it. Yeah. Quinny's. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you uh, like this show and you enjoyed these episodes, you know, next time you pour yourself a glass of orange juice, just think about, you know, maybe just check on your friends, call them up, <laughs> drop a pin, something, you know, just, just check say, anything. Hey, you just know, Hey How girl, you what have you been up to? I'm just checking in to make sure that you're not being threatened by a wealthy and powerful individual, you know? Hey, Beanies, love, love you. Bye. Bye.